Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 119, the podcast where we talk about photography, videography, and anything that's got anything to do with any of that. Now, let me just say this first. If you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, um, give us a few stars, leave a review. Uh, but also, you can hop over to YouTube where you can see this whole thing in full Technicolor as well. Anyway, so it's been a busy week. Um, it's been a very busy week. Um, quite a few things that have been happening. Um, there's been a, a really cool photo shoot that left me very hungry. I'm gonna talk about that in a minute. Um, but also the photography show is coming up in just under two weeks. So uh, for those of you who are listening to this podcast from further afield, uh, the photography show is uh, the biggest photography and videography trade show in Europe um, at this point. So uh, it's happening next weekend. I think it's the 17th, 16th to the 20th of September, something like that um, in Birmingham at the NEC. We'll be there. Um, you know, come and say hello if you see me or Nick um, traipsing about. <laughs> Just come and say hello if you are listening. Um, otherwise, we'll you know we'll be back next week. Anyway, so here we go. This week, um, yeah, like I said, it's been busy. Um, I've had a very interesting uh, photo shoot at the Craft Guild of Chefs, um, which was very interesting. Uh, it's an award they do every every year, um, and it basically gives young young chefs the opportunity to um, really you know step up and uh, present some incredible dishes. It was incredible. The whole thing was incredible. I'm completely flabbergasted by the amount of skill uh, present in this building. Um, there was a, a standard kitchen, and there was a pastry kitchen. And for anybody who's who's listening to this podcast who shoots food, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> how do you not get hungry when you when you photograph uh, food? Oh, I don't know. It was uh, it was tough. It was tough. Anyway, and it's an interesting thing. Actually, let's talk about this this photo shoot for a minute. And it's one of these uh, corporate type shoots that requires a number of different um, disciplines. So we had action shots um, of you know chefs preparing food in the kitchen. Um, you know, there were um, product shots, if you want to call it that, of the finished dishes. And of course, there were headshots as well. So it was all, it was all happening, it was all wrapped into, um, into one event. Um, and it all happened on this one day. So, I mean, in terms of volume, it wasn't necessarily that bad. I think there was probably about 19 headshots to be done. Um, that, you know, you can, you can rattle those off relatively quickly. Um, but yeah, photographing food for a whole day, it's, it's a tough job. <laughs> anyway, um, now, well, oh, so last week, or not last week, the week before last, um, I talked about um, something, a photo shoot that I did back in Germany. And as part of that, I was talking about light meters. And uh, we had a few questions come in as far as light meters are concerned. So I thought this week, we're going to dedicate the whole thing to light meters versus histograms versus eyeballing. Do you use an eye? Uh, do you use an eye? Do you use a light meter or do you use a histogram to get the right exposure? Um, maybe you don't feel that you need to use a light meter because maybe you're shooting landscapes and you know, using the histogram that's fine for you. Uh, maybe you do use a light meter, um, then it'd be really interesting to hear from you and um, you know, tell us what your experience is uh, in terms of why you like using a light meter or why you think it's unnecessary. Anyway, so in order to get a correct, in inverted commas, exposure, there's really just three ways you can do that. Uh, one is you can use a light meter. Um, you could use your histogram that has pros and cons, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But you could also just eyeball it, you know, 
um, on the back of the screen or in the EVF or if you're tethering on, you know, on your computer screen. Um, now, each one of those methods comes with advantages and disadvantages. And in today's episode, I'll explore exactly um, where the pros and cons are for each one of those. Now, I'm going to start with the histogram because the histogram is something that you find built in, in I, would get, I would say, probably all DSLRs and mirrorless cameras um, these days. So it's something I think most um, listeners would be familiar with. But if you're not, it's basically a graph on the back of the camera um, after you take an image that, or in the electronic viewfinder uh, with mirrorless cameras, um, that basically maps the dark and bright pixels in the image. So if you imagine you've got a dark pixels on the left and the bright, the brightest pix uh, pixels on the far right, and you'll end up with a graph, and that really just displays, or you know, yeah, displays what's happening in that picture. If you're, if you find that you have a lot of pixels toward the left side of the of the histogram, um, you know that your image is going to be slightly too dark. Um, and if your pixels are bunched up on the right hand side of the histogram, then that indicates that your image is possibly too bright. So what you want is sort of a nice mountain range in the middle. And um, there are exceptions to that. I mean, one exception would be, for instance, if you're shooting headshots in a white background where you're intentionally blowing out the background, um, you'd find a lot of pixels on the very, very far right of the histogram. And that is just how it is. So it comes with a caveat. Um, so just looking at the histogram itself doesn't necessarily tell you whether the exposure is correct or not correct. It's I think it's, it's relatively tricky to rely on that. Um, it works well when you're shooting landscapes, maybe. Um, you know, when, actually, in fact, when you're shooting with available light, um, it's a very useful tool. I mean, that's what it's there for. It just tells you what's what's happening. It basically lets you know whether you're blocking up the shadows or whether you're um, overexposing the, the highlights. But you know, um, so so it can it can be extremely useful um, for that. Um, that becomes an issue when you're reproducing an image. So for instance, when you're printing an image and you've got your, your shadows blocked out and your highlights are blown out, then, then that's a problem in print because it'll always, well, it'll always come up looking like crap, basically. So the histogram itself doesn't consider color at all. Um, it literally just maps the, the brightness of the, of, the, of the pixels across the image. Um, Again, like I said, you know, everything outside of that is either blown out or blocked up. You know. So in like I said, in general, you want to keep your image somewhere in between. Um, I think one of the main issues that I have with histograms is that it simply it measures reflective light. So reflective light, if you imagine, you know, light hits your subject, whatever it is that you're photographing, it might be a mountain or it might be a person, and then that light gets reflected off of that. Um, subject and it then hits the sensor of your camera and that is basically the light that the uh, the histogram is measuring or that the sensors the camera is measuring so what you're dealing with is really reflective light so another disadvantage there could be for instance if you imagine if you're um, photographing your subject let's say you're doing a portrait in front of a dark background then the histogram will really show a lot of dark pigments so it'll be of dark pixels. It'll be very much bunched up towards the left side 
of the graph. Um, that doesn't really reflect what's going on in the image. It just basically is an indication that you know you've got a lot of dark stuff happening in that image. And you know the the problem with that is if you if you're trying to get a right exposure, if you imagine you're shooting a person in front of a dark background, what you're really exposing for is the face or the skin tone, and the histogram will give you uh, almost like an incorrect reading of what's actually happening, and uh, so you'd be you'd have a tendency to overexpose if you were just going for the for the histogram. Um, what you'd have to do is you'd literally have to zoom in onto somebody's face, get the right exposure there, and then zoom out again. And that would then, you know, the end result would be, be that the face would be correctly exposed and the background would appear dark. Um, that's a bit of a pain in the backside, I guess. So in a portrait situation, I'm not sure that I would rely on on Instagram uh, at all times. Um, the Instagram, however, and I have to say this, um, is, is really useful, again, when you're shooting with available light, and especially in concert uh, photography type of situations where you're shooting you know, indoors and um, you have to make use of the available light that's around you, uh, the histogram can become very useful. Uh, the way I usually shoot in concert situations is, is that I shoot slightly underexposed, I know, controversial, whatever, that's how I do it. Um, so I shoot about half a stop to a stop under, so I know that my pixels are going to be bunching up on the left-hand side, um, because it. You know, I know that I have the flexibility in post to pull some of that detail back out of the shadows, and it also means that I'm not necessarily uh, crucifying all the highlights in there. That's how I do it. Other people do it differently. If you shoot, uh, you know, concerts and you have a different method, then get in touch would be really interesting, and maybe Maybe have a chat with Anne Hess about that at some point in the future. But for me, that works. So it's sort of a tandem between, you know, the camera technology and post-production. When I shoot concerts, I just like doing it like that. I like the results that I get. Um, and, you know, everybody seems to be happy, so it's all good. Um, now, there's an old rule that basically says you should always expose to the right, which means that you know, you, you keep the uh, the details in the shadows and you expose slightly to the right. Um, you know, there's a danger there that you're blowing out the highlights. Um, doesn't it, I mean, the advantage there is that you might be able to um, reduce the overall noise in the image. Um, I think with all the cameras that would have been very useful because noise usually happens or appears in the shadows. Um, so if you're keeping the shadows clean, then then you know you get a, a cleaner image, technically speaking. But you know nowadays sensors are so good, I don't think you have to necessarily worry about that too much. Um, like I said, I do the other way around. I shoot um, slightly underexposed, and I pull that detail back out of the shadows. And you know, on a very rare occasion that I have to run some uh, noise reduction on it, so be it. It's fine, you know. But overall, I just like to look better. There you go. Um. Now, let's talk about the light meter. The light meter is sort of the exact opposite of the histogram. So rather than reading reflective light, light meters read what's called incident light. And uh, what that means is it literally reads the light that actually that hits the subject. So the way you measure with the light meter is that you hold up the light meter in front of whatever it is that you're photographing, let's say a face, for example, and, you know, 
and that's where the measurement takes place. And I have a light meter here. In fact, that's the light meter I use all the time. It's a Siconic L308X. It's quite a simple light meter. Um, I've used it for years. It's, you know, it's nothing special. Um, it has a few useful functions uh, that I'll talk about in a second, but um, I use it predominantly um, when I shoot with artificial light. So, you know, studio strobes, for example. Um, I find it extremely useful. It's it's great. I'll go into um, why I prefer to use a light meter rather than just eyeball it um, in a minute. But yeah, it's it's a very simple uh, simple light meter. The way you would normally uh, measure that is basically in front of the face. So some people like to measure under the chin. Some people like to measure in front of the face or the forehead. That's completely, you know, that's personal preference. I guess I tend to measure somewhere around here. Um, and all you do is you basically point the lumosphere, which is this white, this white ball thing. <laughs> you just point it at the camera, uh, you know, press a button, fire the flash, it takes a reading, it tells you, you know, it tells you what your, uh, what your settings are at this, or should be at this particular point in order to get um, an accurate um, exposure. What the light meter actually does is it gives you a readout of what shutter speed, the ISO and um, the aperture should be in order to yeah, in order to get an accurate um, exposure. You essentially set two of those parameters and the light meter will basically tell you what the third one is. It's usually, it's usually the aperture. So, and then you just simply adapt the flash power um, to that and, you know, and Bob's the uncle. And it's, I, don't, I don't really like the term correct exposure. I don't really think there's such a thing as a correct exposure. The correct exposure is basically the exposure that you feel is creatively right for what it is that you're trying to create. Um, from a technical perspective, you know, a light meter can get you to a good starting point. That can be perfect, or you might want to adjust it from there, but at least you're right there. It's not, it's not even so much as a ballpark. It's pretty much there. You just then adjust certain things. You know, um, it's especially useful for portraits, headshots, um, all of that kind of stuff. Um, it works it works really really quite well. This light meter, although it's relatively simple, can still do a number of really useful things. Not only can it measure the power of your flash, um, but you can also measure things like ambient light. You can in fact measure reflective light as well uh, by just simply moving the lumosphere to the side. So you could do things like you could measure you know uh, lighting ratios, for example, you know, if you have uh, multiple lights set up. Um, you could basically measure you know, the, the power of each individual light and then work out what your lighting ratio is or adjust each light accordingly depending on what it is that you that you want to achieve. Um, but you can also use it in scene mode so you can uh, make measurements that would be useful if you're shooting video for example. Um, you know things like that. Um, it would you know it would take into account your frames per second and all the rest of it. So it's, it's quite a useful thing. I think the biggest thing for me though in uh, using a light meter is simply the fact that it's fast. Um, when you're working with clients, you don't really have time to waste. And just taking one or two measurements and you know being ready to shoot is worth its weight in gold, basically. Um, you know, I think if you're if you're eyeballing it, then you're just taking test shot after test shot and you know you're trying to dial things in and it'll just take so much more time. Um, it also looks really quite unprofessional. I think that's the one thing I like about live meters is that, you know, it makes you look like you know what you're doing. <laughs> that's the thing. And the final method 
of making sure that you get a good exposure is what I call eyeballing. Basically, you take a shot, you look at the back of your screen or you look into you know, in your EVF and you sort of guesstimate that that's what it should look like. This, there are a number of major drawbacks with that. You know, one is, this is probably the biggest drawback, is that you can't really rely on the screen on the back of the camera because depending on what brightness that's set to, you know, depending on what the lighting conditions are, the other, you can't really get an accurate you know, reading of, of the image. It might look good on the back of the screen, and then as soon as you load it up on your computer, it's completely out. That happened to, that's happened to me so many times. Um, especially, I say especially when it comes to street photography, uh, you know, that's one of the drawbacks um, of shooting with a mirrorless camera, for me anyway, is that I think it looks awesome on the back of the screen. As soon as I've got it on a computer, I'm like, oh man, you know, that's not as, by far not as good as I thought it was going to be. You know, that's a, I think that's a major, major drawback. It's also a really slow method because you're constantly, you know, taking, you know, test shot and you're adjusting something and taking another test shot and, and really, you know, you can't really rely on any of that. Um, you just end up with also surprises in editing and, you know, who wants that? So anyway, but if that is what you prefer to do, maybe you just can't be asked to, you know, use one of those, um, you know, get in touch, let us know. Um, that'd be super interesting. Or maybe you've never actually used one of those and you'd like to try. Um, in that case, you know, get in touch and maybe we'll do a longer um, episode on how to use one of those in action. Um, but it'd be really interesting to hear from you, you know, to see what, uh, what you think. Um, do you think it's worth purchasing one of those or do you think it's a waste of money? You can just do it, you know, using the histogram and, you know, the light, the built-in light meter um, in your camera. Um, you know, it'd be really interesting to hear your side of the story and how, how you prefer to shoot. Um, you know, do you mix and match? Some people do. I do all the time. So what else has been happening in the world of photography? Well, the biggest news today, I think, has probably been the newly announced iPhone 14 Pro and the Pro Max. And the fact that they finally ditched the notch. Um, there's also been an upgrade to the main camera, which we'll talk about. The, uh, the iPhone 14 Pro is a 6.1 inch, um, or has a 6.1 inch screen. Um, the Pro Max is a 6.7 inch screen, so slightly bigger. And uh, they have a, a new dynamic island notification system. So we got rid of the, of the notch and doing it slightly differently. And an upgraded, get this, 48 megapixel main camera. 48 megapixel on the phone. Who would have thought? So the new main camera is actually, it's a three lens array. So you get 48 megapixel out of the, the main camera. The sensor itself, um, also features a quad pixel array and is, is overall 65% larger than the iPhone 13 Pro. So bigger sensor, better quality. The other improvement has been in the low light department. So apparently the, uh, the new main camera is now up to three times better um, than, than the iPhone Pro, uh, iPhone 13. The ultra wide camera is up to two times better and the telephoto camera is up to two times uh, better on the on the true depth camera. The interesting thing about this is, is what they're saying is, is that the photonic engine enables this dramatic increase in quality by applying deep fusion earlier in the imaging process to deliver extraordinary detail, uh, preserve subtle textures, provide better color, and so on. Uh, I have seen some sample images, and I have to say, it's really quite impressive. Never thought I would say that, but yeah, it looks good. So Apple say they've also redesigned the flash. Uh, with what they call a new adaptive true tone 
flash, um, which is an array of nine LEDs that change the pattern according to the focal length. So that could be quite interesting. Um, it'd be interesting to see what the result of that is. It comes with a whole bunch of computational photography modes, including night mode, smart HDR4, portrait mode uh, with portrait lighting, night mode and portrait photos. The video camera comes with a new action mode, which offers more stabilization. Could be an interesting thing. And there's also a cinematic mode, which allows you to shoot 4K at 30 or 24 uh, frames per second. I'd like to see the, you know, some, some examples of that. Uh, but it could indeed be quite interesting. Maybe next time I just film this whole podcast on an iPhone. Why not? So the iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max have basically gotten rid of the notch and improved the camera. Is that enough for you to upgrade? I don't know, I'll be sticking with my iPhone for a little while longer, I think. But enough about phones. There's something else on the horizon that could be quite interesting, provided you have the necessary spare change. And that is Hasselblad's new X2D 100C. It's a 100 megapixel camera with IBIS and hybrid AF. It's Hasselblad's new flagship medium format camera. And it features a 100 megapixel uh, backside illuminated sensor, face detection hybrid autofocus, in-body image stabilization and a 15 stop at uh, 15 stops of dynamic range with 16-bit color. They say it's the, the next generation mirrorless um, medium format camera. But it looks interesting, let's put it this way. I mean, it looks like it looks like a Hasselblad. Um, it's uh, it has 294 face detection autofocus points um, for rapid you know focusing. It shoots in RAW and JPEG, although I want to see somebody shoot just J just JPEGs with Hasselblad. Why not? <laughs> it's not really the fastest camera I've ever seen. It can shoot 3.3 frames per second in 14-bit color. Uh, and it slows down when you set it to 16-bit color. So it's not for you sports shooters out there, I guess. Now, it does, however, um, feature a, a five-axis in-body stabilization IBIS system. Um, that's capable of seven stops of stabilization. It's not bad. Um, it allows the camera to be handheld, um, even in, in you know, relatively low light situations and still produce pretty sharp images. So it's what you kind of expect for a retail price of $8,200. So if you've got that little spare change lying around, then maybe the Hasselblad is the camera for you, you know, unless you're into Leica's, you know, but there you go. You know, take up a job in dentistry and the new Hasselblads or Leica might be the right choice for you. So that's it. We've come to the end of Camera Tech Podcast episode 119. Bit of a shorter episode this week, but we'll be back next week with an extra long session. We've got a guest on the show and we'll be talking photography show and everything that's uh, that's coming up there. Loads of goodness, obviously, um, that we're expecting there. Should be super interesting if you can make it. You know, hopefully we'll see you there. Come and say hello. Um, otherwise, make sure you follow us on Facebook uh, with our Camera Shake Podcast group. You know, follow us there or, you know, say hello on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all that good stuff. Anyway, see you then.